Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Gia Tolentino is a peerless voice of her generation, tackling the conflicts, contradictions, and sea of changes that define us in our time. Now in this dazzling collection of nine entirely original essays, written with a rare combination of give and sharpness, wit and fearlessness, uh, she delves into the forces that warp our vision, demonstrating an unparalleled stylistic potency and critical dexterity. Zadie Smith has described it as a whip-smart, challenging book that will prompt many of us to take a long, hard look in the mirror. And Rebecca Solnit has referred to Tolentino as the best young essayist at work in the United States. It's pretty cool. Um, Emma Carmichael is a writer and editor. She is currently a staff writer on Wyatt Senex Problem Areas on HBO. She was editor-in-chief of Jezebel from 2014 to 2017. Uh, prior to Jezebel, she served as editor of The Hairpin and managing editor of both Gawker and Deadspin. Her writing has been published in Deadspin, Gawker, Jezebel, Sports Illustrated, Spin, New York, and The All. Emma grew up in Brattleboro, Vermont, and graduated from Vassar College in 2010. She lives in Brooklyn, L.A. LA. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please put your hands together for Gia Help. <laughs> you guys, thank you, for, thank you for, like, standing and coming. This is crazy. This is normal. Yeah, this is a normal <laughs> thing. This feels normal. <laughs> uh, Emma, it's great to meet you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I read some of your work this week, and it's true what they say. It's pretty good. It's, <laughs> it's decent, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget emailing you six years ago to work at the hairpin and saying, I just have a feeling you're going to be the Joan Didion <laughs> of our generation. Fuck off. Well, you can work with me. <laughs> I owe my whole career to Emma, basically. She gave me my first job and then my second job. <laughs> uh, you can blame her, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, let's do this. Um, let's start out. I have to pretend I don't know anything about you. I know, so. yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> Can you begin by telling us just how you started to approach this collection? You write about so many topics. You have such a, like, you know, wealth of knowledge and topics that you can write about, except for sports, which yeah. is great. <laughs> uh, so how did you, when you were when you were settling in to write this, how did you narrow down to nine topics with, like, this loose theme tying it all together? Um, and, yeah. I think... So, you know, there are those things that in the back of your head, you know, like there are all these things were basically the things that I would get drunk and like talk to like you about, you know what I mean? Like I, like we used to work above the Lululemon flagship store in Manhattan, like the Jezebel office was right above it. So we'd pass it every day and I just developed this, like I would walk past it and like reality would just fracture. And I was like, this is late capitalist fetish wear. Why? You know? And, and then I would like, I was trying to figure it out. Like these were the things I started thinking about like that one, that essay, it's about optimization and the way that um, kind of athleisure treats the female body as a market asset that is divisible into further assets that have to improve their performance on the market over time. Like these things that I would just, I would just think about um, walking, like going about my day. Like another part of that was like another workday thing where we would be like, 
like we would, I would take my lunch break. I'd be like on Slack and be like, okay, I'm going to get lunch. And then I'd like go to Sweetgreen and like be on Slack the whole time I was getting lunch and then like get my salad and then like text the whole time I was eating it. And then like my brain would just have an earthquake and I was like, what am I, like what's happening? Like I would get this deep existential dread from so many of the things that make up our everyday life. And it was basically like there were like nine clipboards and then enough stuff or like there were like, there were like 20 clipboards in my head and enough and like something would happen and I would just throw it on one of them. And then right around the time that I was like, maybe a good use of my next two years would be writing a book. Nine of them filled up. Mm -hmm. So I pitched it exactly as I wrote it. Basically it was like, these are these nine questions that I have. Like, why am I so freaked out by X or why am I still thinking and talking about this thing? So dread, you would say. Yeah. Yeah. Dreads the driving. I actually think so like that, the, Didion thing, which I know I heard that there's like a like a Jezebel alumni Slack, and I'm not in it right now because I don't have to be on Slack for work, and I'm like, but I kind of miss it. But I heard that y'all were talking shit every time, every time there was a you. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually think like that's the only like the the Joan Didion thing is like an insult to her because she's a better writer, but it's also an insult to me because I'm a better hang. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like. You know what I mean? I think you should just lean into it and start recreating the iconic photos. Yeah. Completely. Oh, I was, I did want to do that. Like one of the, like the, I'm actually very glad I didn't do it now, but one of, like, remember my idea, like the, the Corvette, like cool. Like I was like me doing that, but me like ripping a huge bong, like yeah. instead of like smoking a cigarette. And you're like jean diaper. Yeah. Like, like what I'm wearing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought about doing like rent the runway from a book tour. Then I was like, you can't write a book about self-delusion and then like dress up nice for your book tour. Like it just wouldn't be correct. Um, but anyway, I, I think that the Didion comparison is literally only because of the undercurrent of dread. Like I really don't, think there's that much in common with our writing but I think that she had this really palpable sense of dread at the end of the 60s and throughout the 70s about the changes that were on the horizon and I think that I do too Mm -hmm. uh yeah um well literally like how I think you know reading this book there's so much there's so many literary references there's so much you obviously read and consumed and interviewed to write this like, literally, I'm curious, how did you set out to write each essay, and how did you organize your thoughts? Yeah, so I um, I was like, okay, I got to write this book in, like, a year, and I just, I was like, I wanted to do it kind of quickly, basically as quick as, as I could reasonably do it, and so, I mean, I, in retrospect, it's too quick, like, in retrospect, I'm like, maybe I should have spent a little more time, but I think I like, I mean, as you know, I like to you know, when I'm focused, I'm so focused, and when I, like, when I'm thinking about something, I'm, you know, so fixated on it and then when I'm not thinking I'm really not thinking and I think that um and I so basically I there were like each essay was like a question right the first essay in the book is about the internet and the question that I was trying to answer was you know 10 years ago the internet felt generative and it felt fun and it felt like you could still go on it and be surprised and now it's like suddenly I mean really so quickly it's a truism that it's destroying the civic fabric of the world you know and I was just like how did why was the internet good and why is it bad now and and actually the part of writing the each essay I like I did each in basically six weeks and I spent the first three weeks just reading everything I could and then the second third this the second half writing it which in like retrospect that seems crazy like I should have taken longer but um that was like the reading thing was the best part I I feel like researching is the most fun thing about writing and it's like the thing I like most about journalism is you have an excuse to call up somebody that's spent an entire lifetime studying something you can be like so can you explain like artificial intelligence to me you know (laughs) and they'll just do it 
you know, which feels crazy. Like sometimes I feel like this is the field I chose just because it gave me like an, an airtight excuse to do that. So basically I was just like, what, I would just make a reading list at the beginning, or I started making a reading list when I was writing the proposal. And part of the reason that I decided on these nine ideas was I wanted to read all of these things on each. Like there's an essay about literary heroines and how they like start off really brave when they're kids and they get really depressed and desirable when they're teenagers and then they, you know, get to be bitter adult women and then they die, you know? And like part, it's like, I just wanted to read all of those books again from like, you know, from, you know, Little House on the Prairie all the way to, you know, Anna Karenina. Like, I just wanted the, like, kind of, I wanted the excuse to, like, that extracurricular feeling of having, like, a side reading list. It was, uh, and also, you know, so much of what I was trying to do with this book was kind of distract myself in the product, like, maybe not distract myself in a productive way, but process in a productive way that sense of, like, dread and uselessness that I knew that I would feel from 2016 to 2020 at a bare minimum, you know? Yeah. Like, fully. Um, I want to talk about that as well, but first, I'm talking curious. about dread. <laughs> like when you went to the New Yorker, you had you had some reporting experience. Uh, like I know you write about this in the book, but yeah, like, that the Virginia trip was really your first time doing it. I I had no doubts that you could do it because Gia's like, as you can probably tell, supernaturally comfortable comfortable in like most situations and can talk to a tree stump if she wants to. Uh, but when you uh, when you set out. I, and I've, I've heard you say that you've turned down stories with The New Yorker because you didn't feel like yeah. kind of authoritative enough. Yeah, I was like, I don't know how enough. to do that. Yeah. It's true. It was true. Uh, how do you, what makes you decide what you're capable of taking on and what you're not? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that, Emma. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think, I don't know. So I, I've said this before, but I am not a personal believer in imposter syndrome as it relates to me specifically. <laughs> because I tend to be overconfident and I tend to just blindly throw myself into situations and be like, I belong here, you know? And I think that's another reason I like reporting is because it gives you a structured excuse to do that. But, um, but so for me, like when I first got to the New Yorker, yeah, I had barely reported things. I, the first thing I ever reported was I went back to UVA where I went to college the, the, for frat rush after the Rolling Stone story. Um, and I actually, I'm looking at Anna. <laughs> I learned to report often by editing people who, like I learned to report by editing our reporters. Like I kind of, that was a, an education. It was sort of like, like I often think about editing as getting better at writing without having to write. And editing really great reporters um, was a way to learn. But I, when I came to The New Yorker, I was like, I definitely don't know how to report like a mag, like a, you know, a 7,000 word magazine feature. And I held off like a couple of things. I think when I, I just like know when I can't do something, mm -hmm. you know, like I think I just, I, I, for me, this is not, I think this is not wise for everybody when, but when I have the feeling that I can't do something, I'm, I think I'm right. And so I took like a year at the New Yorker to accept like a big reporting assignment. Cause I was like, I just, I need to get my feet on the ground first. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I have a, I think it's a, it's an underrated skill, like knowing when you are not ready for something. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for like developing the skill of being comfortable in new environments? I think it's a unique one. Do you? Uh, <laughs> not, not caring. Yeah, yeah. I think not caring is a huge one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you think it's part of, you write about this too, but part of your your upbringing, which is unusual, and like you were, 
constantly in environments that were extreme, right? Yeah. So I grew up in a mega church in Texas. My parents are from the Philippines. I was born in Canada, but I grew up um, for 12 years going to a mega church attached to the second, or a school attached to the second biggest mega church in the country. And, you know, it was wild. Like, it was like everyone there was like, it was a very white, very rich school. And like, my parents were neither. And, you know, it was, I never, I didn't meet someone that was pro-choice or anti-war till I went to college, basically. Like, I never heard the word feminist. I, you know, and so, and the, and the school, you know, this, like, Bush-era Texas Christianity is the most, like, hegemonic, like, you know, I, I got my first promise ring, like, true love waits ring when I was in fourth grade. And I came home, and I was like, Mom, like, guess what? I'm pure. And she was like, take that shit off you, you know? She was like, you're seven, you know? Um, and I think, like, and I think that I learned really early on that you don't have to feel like you belong somewhere. I've never really, like, you don't have to feel like you, uh, like, like that a situation is about you or addressed to you or made for you in any way to be able to enjoy it by just learning about it. And I think that there was, like, that was the way I approached a lot of things, like, even in college, like, I, like, you know did sorority rush like as a goof and then you know just kept doing it like like maybe my life has been a series of doing things like as a bit and then they harden into you know um lifetime reality like you know such as like monogamous heterosexuality you know um and, like wouldn't it be funny if I do the super predictable but um but yeah I think like uh, to me I will I was thinking about this actually one of the things that having to talk about myself so much recently it's made me understand things about myself that I, like, I think I'm, I think one of the reasons I write so much is that I'm actually bad at understanding. I mean, I say this in the intro, like, I'm bad at understanding things unless I write about them. And I think I realized that, um, like, the side of me that's always, like, the half of my brain that's always worrying, like, thinking about systems and, you know, wanting to write things down and, like, a little bit uncomfortable, that is like a necessary, that's like the part, it's related to the part of me that's extremely present. Like in like, you know, a bar class or whatever, I have been so much more alive to the strangeness of it because like I've been so much more present because I was always thinking about, mm -hmm. you know. So maybe it's like I'm comfortable because I'm always incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think I've been kind of surprised that some of the reaction of the book has been surprised that your essays don't have like neat, uh, clean endings kind yeah. of. And that... I've always thought you, you're very comfortable in your writing in, you know, a lack of neatness, basically, yeah. and, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not being sure at the end, uh, which I think, yeah, kind of relates to that Yeah, comfort, discomfort. Like, and I, like, yeah. can't, I mean, that's one thing that was a, I mean, that could make this book an incredibly hard sell, you know, like, when I was finishing it, people were like, what's it about? And I was like, <laughs> dread you know <laughs> like um and it was you know like I would go to meetings and you know even at my publisher you know they'd be like so what's the one takeaway that you want readers to come away with and I was just like oh no like I you know like I like I've I've made a huge mistake you know um and but I think you know, there's this idea that people want that, but I don't actually think we do. Like, I don't think, I haven't been able to trust a conclusive mood, basically. I mean, that was my biggest takeaway from, you know, woke up the morning after the election. I was like, I will never be that certain again, and I should never be. Like, it is no longer appropriate to feel like your sense of morality applies to an understanding of what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Like, like, especially right now, I felt really strongly about can 
that was like my main animating impulse, right? It's like, what kind of clarity can you achieve about the world without a resolution? Because that sort of feels like what's incumbent among, uh, like upon us to think about, mm -hmm. you know? Do you feel like you have more clarity having written this book? I do. I do. And I do in particular, like, um, I think one thing that, so in the book there are no which I think has bothered some people there are no like solutions you know there's no like you know here's here's how here's then how we should live and here's the things that will make it all okay and I didn't do that not because there's a lack of like organizations and people working towards it but more because I think like often when I write, like I was thinking, I wrote that like stupid large adult sons thing. And it's like, I often will leave the most important point out of a piece because I think everyone is like readers are, people are smart. Like people can get it. And like the, the large adult sons piece was about race, but I didn't put it in there because it's so obvious, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just like, I kind of think that's like a sign of respect. I mean, that might be me copping out of, you know, being a, an unclear writer, but, um, <laughs> but I think there are just some very obvious. And for me, like, kind of talking about the book this way, the clarity that the book brought me to is that there are basically no individual solutions. Like there are things we can do that are coherent to our sense of morality and the way we want to live in this world, but there are no individual solutions. Like there, there are solutions to every single problem I talk about in this book, but they're all policy-based. They're all about like economic redistribution and you know, like they, and I think that that's, maybe the clarity that I've gotten, that this confusion about the self in context of all these systems, it almost doesn't matter. Like the self doesn't matter at all. Like what matters is just the systems. And I, that's not in the book at all, but I think that it's the very obvious takeaway that anyone comes away with, you know, that, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, is it, you kind of touched on this, but a lot of the, the book I'd say too, especially the reality TV episode, um, it's sort of about like the self that you project into the world and how you like consume that after the fact. Yeah. How have you found book promotion <laughs> to be in relation to that? Oh my God. <laughs> well, so the, like, it actually feels the exact same as watching the reality TV essay that watching. So I was on this reality TV show and I was 16 and I never watched it and I just kind of made myself forget about it. And then I was like writing a book about, you know, like self-perception and the age of, you know, self-surveillance. And I was like, oh God, I have to watch this show. And I, like, I'm, I never, we were talking, Emma and I went on a trip before she tragically moved to LA and we were talking about, I was like, I've never seen you uncomfortable. And Emma was like, yeah, I've never seen you uncomfortable either. And we were like, huh, what's wrong with us? <laughs> and, um, but I was like, nothing makes me really, really uncomfortable anymore. Like very, I get uncomfortable like once a year. And, um, and watching that show, I like, like they would bring it, like my friends would bring it up and I would start screaming. Like I would put my hands over my ears and like start like rocking back and forth. Like I, I could not bring myself to watch the show because I think what I was um, dreading realizing about myself or like seeing realized about myself is that I've always taken very naturally to these mechanisms of self-broadcasting. You know, I was on this reality TV show. I acted exactly the way that I do in real life now at 16. Like m me in that reality show is identical to me earlier today. And that was both comforting and really scary because it was like, this is why you don't mind being on Twitter is because you voluntarily went on a reality show when you were 16. And I think that is... Um, that bespeaks something wrong with me. <laughs> um, but it also... 
like I, anyway, to answer your question, I think what it's been like, it's weird to realize um, that you, like it's always like realizing that you're suited to these mechanisms of self-promotion. I guess that's like what the whole book is about, right? Like you're suited to, like me realizing that I'm suited or drawn to systems that, you know, are, you know, that degrade our world, you know? And I think the, like talking, like realizing that, you know, I can sit here and talk about myself. It feels like I'm both glad and I feel uncomfortable about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Um, I saw a few tweets today uh, from readers that basically were saying like, I want to share passages from Gia's book, but I, f I f basically like, I fear that's too meta because she, it, like you addressed yeah. virtue signaling so well in yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which strikes me as a great trap you said your readers Yeah, <laughs> I felt like that reading, I've been like literally talking about this book every stop, but that Jenny O'Dell book, How to Do Nothing, like that was the exact same thing. I read it and I wanted to tweet every page and then I was like, ah! like, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that too. I, I know you've talked about this a lot, but you are also supernaturally good at turning off the internet occasionally. Yeah. Can you talk about how you do that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I, I'm for better or worse, I'm extremely all or nothing about everything, you know, like I, well, so my approach to the internet, and it's, it's actually changed since I, when, when I was an editor at Jezebel, I had to, like, you know, you're, you're just scrolling Twitter, looking for things to assign, and so you're just strapped to this, like, you know, you're strapped to a landmine all day long, just like being like, this is good, you know, and, um, and then I stopped editing, and it would actually, I felt so lonely in my brain, because like when you're, when you're editing, um, I've talked about this recently, but one of the things that I loved about it was that you, your interest get it, gets engaged with so many things, you know, like you, you are editing so many things that you inevitably bring your interest to bear. So I felt like I was interested in everything constantly all the time because the job kind of required it. Right. And then I stopped being editor, started working just as a writer. And I was actually like, you know what? I'm not actually interested in everything. I don't actually care like I, I was able to calibrate my, you know, my relationship of, you know, cause I think the internet feeling is being able to know everything about everything, but being able to do less about anything. And I think not having to edit anymore allowed me to sort of be like, okay, I'll be in, be online when I'm interested in it. But, you know, I tried to lose the reflexive thing. So I tried to reorient my relationship with the internet. I've, I mean, I'm still trying to reorient my reorient my relationship with the internet around pleasure. It's like use it as long as you're having a good time, and once you stop having a good time, get off like make yourself get off of it. Right. Um, and but it's you know, it's it's hard because so many of our jobs require us to be constantly checking email, right? And so it's like it is sort of systemically, you know, if you're an Uber driver, you have to be on your phone all the time. Like it's, it's like, it is harder. Like I am enjoying this position of extreme luxury where the only person I have to talk to all day is my editor and whoever I'm, you know, interviewing for some piece I'm reporting. So I have like a built-in way to not be on the computer, which that's probably it. Yeah. And I, you also enjoy the internet, right? And I think that's yeah, fair I, to say, like yeah. you are an MFA graduate who thinks dat boy is the funniest thing that boy world. is so funny <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um that was the last good meme honestly that was the last meme that like made me cry when I was just like sitting around you know like my wife though yeah but that that was that was my wife was pre-dad boy you know that's true, that's true. yeah <laughs> um 
I, I, I think some of the writing about the book has sort of suggested that it's a little bit, uh, like, surprisingly, I think people are surprised that you are, I don't want to say cynical, but, like, a little bit more hopeless than they might expect? Well, it's funny. The reaction to that, I f- it's, it's weird. I think it's kind of generational. Like everyone yeah. that's over, th- people that are over 40 are like, wow, you know, with, with, with a healthy dose of cynicism and, you know, that verges on the fatalistic, you know, and then like, and then like, you know, some college students who are writing about it for their college papers, like God bless them, are like a book filled with hope, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, and I, I think that that's kind of been the reaction. Like, it's like to, like, it's, uh, yeah. And so people that are older than me tend to react to this as like, I'm super cynical. And then people younger than me tend to be like, wow, a path to the future. <laughs> and, um, you can do both. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, it's strange. And I, I told you, like, I, one of the things that threw me the most was I was doing some pre-interview for, I was talking to like a TV producer and she was pre-interviewing me for something and she was like, so, you know, I read the book and my question for you is, do you, do you believe in anything? <laughs> and I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, like I was like, does this book make it seem like I don't believe in anything? But I think that is a reaction because I think that, I mean, we, we saw it all the time. Like you, there's just a natural inclination probably in our human brains. And also when we render them onto the page in writing, like like there's that movement, that sort of bullshitty movement at the end of each piece, or it, I don't want to say bullshitty, like in some, on some topics, like I was talking, like evicted, that Matthew Desmond book, right? Like I wanted that last 10 pages that's like, here are the policies we need, right? But a lot of things, there's this movement towards like, but in the end, like we'll all be okay, <laughs> you know? And like this book totally doesn't have that. Yeah. And I think it's jarring because I think it's, I mean, it's such a reflex in writing to, to like, to tie it up. Mm-hmm. But that hasn't been how my brain has felt, even since long before the election. Like at Jezebel, I was trying to do that already because I was so sick of just the cadence of that essay ending that yeah. was like, you know, but all isn't lost. And I was like, it could be, you know? Yeah. I also <laughs> think that reaction kind of reflects like, I don't know, a sort of lack of understanding of how aware millennials are of like the systems that shape uh, yeah right I mean and I think that like one of the only things that delineates the millennial generation is systemic you know degradation and collapse like it's like it is defined like recession to to the election like that's it like student loans you know whatever everything and um and I think and it, I've, been inter- I've been interviewing a lot of teens for this piece I'm reporting right now, and it's like they, it's like baked deep in their soul, you know? Like, and it's kind of great, but scary, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess to wrap it up, because I think we should do questions, uh, what is your hope that readers, like you obviously wrote this book at a certain time for a certain reason, what's your hope readers will take away from engaging with it and thinking about what you're talking about? <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know. I didn't think about that because, you know, I, I truly didn't because I almost feel like, and this is one of the reasons that I think I um, manage okay on things like Twitter. It's because it's like, it's not like, it, it, and this is one of the things that I found so interesting about Jezebel. It's like, it's not for me to say what anyone should do with their life, you know? Like even just the reflexive questions of like, is X good or bad? Like all of these, you know, the, the what should we do, um, it's like I, I haven't really tried to think about it because it seems like audacious and wrong for me to be like, here's what you should take away. It's like whatever everyone takes away is 
whatever they take away. But I do think that it's, it's that point that I was saying earlier that, um, and maybe it was like my takeaway, that all of this wheel spinning that I tend to do, possibly because of my evangelical upbringing where I like evaluated my conduct at the end of every day, you know, to be like, was I good or bad? Like, like that kind of doesn't matter anymore, right? Like we're dealing in extremities and stakes that are so far beyond the question of like, am I good or bad? Or like, is what I'm doing good or bad? Like the answer is always going to be both. Like, I think the, like one of the things that this book made me think a lot about is that, and I've said this a lot, but that the conditions, like a lot of the, a lot of the systems that might benefit, all of the systems that benefit me are punishing other people. Like anything I benefit from is punishing someone else. And I think for a long time, I tried to think about that at the level of the individual. Like, what should I then do? And then I think I realized that that's the wrong question to ask, right? Like the question, the answer is always going to be collective. It's always going to be systemic. It's always going to be policy. And that's like the closest thing to a takeaway that I have. Yeah. I also, I I feel like you've been acknowledging in a few interviews lately, like uh, the feeling of luck that you have, that like you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Um, Well, I've thought about that ever since, like, so at Jezebel, we ran, I think the thing still that I'm proudest of ever doing, like maybe more than this book was that abortion interview with Elizabeth or Erica. And, um, and she, you know, she went through, like, this is a woman got an abortion at 32 weeks for, you know, fetal abnormality, like a fatal fetal abnormality. And it was this horrible ordeal. And we were talking about it for three hours on the phone. And she was just like, you know, I feel lucky. And I was like, do you really feel lucky? You know, and she was like, yeah, I'm part of the global 1%. You know, and, and we were, and we started talking about that. And I think, you know, in terms of the biggest problems of our time, like climate change, like that's something that I think about all the time. And yeah. Um, I get to talk to you all the time, so you guys should ask your questions now. <laughs> uh, and best-selling book, can we just... You know it, you know the church name, <laughs> the Repentagon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I think, well, Lakewood wasn't around then, the bigger church with like Joel Osteen, who is the better known Texas pastor, who is not, that's not the school I went to because they don't have a school. Um, I think they had joined, they had been in a small, like a small church in Toronto. And they were, I think one of the reasons that anyone joins a mega church in Texas is that, or in Houston is that the city's too big to think of as a community. Like there's not much of a sense of Houston as a community because it's so big and it's spread out over, you know, it takes you three and a half hours to drive across the city. There's just no way to think of the public. It has no public space. Like, and so I think the church substitutes for a, you know, it becomes a real community. Um, and I think that's maybe, you know, they just moved here from Canada. Um, maybe that's what they were, they were looking for, but they were never, you know, like a lot of people have asked me like, why, you know, how did you not come out more fucked up? (laughs) And I think the answer was that my parents were, you know, they went to the church and we went on Sundays, but at home I was extremely free, you know, like they were just like, whatever you think is whatever you think. And I give them a normal, you know, credit for that, even though. I'm always like, sorry, I wrote the, sorry, I write about drugs so much. <laughs> like, sorry, mom. <laughs> um, was there 
Hmm, that's an interesting question. I I think a lot surprised me. I mean, for me, like feeling surprised is the number one and maybe the only thing that I look for when I'm writing. Like I think even if it's like a little blog post, I feel like that's that's when I'm like that I, I can't write something unless I've surprised myself a little bit. And so I think every every essay did um in some way, mostly because I had no idea. I mean I had no idea. Actually, like find, figuring out anything always surprises me. Um, so everything surprises me constantly. But I, what really surprised me actually was personal. Like I was going back through, I fact checked a lot of. Whenever I write about myself, I went back and fact checked it with like, you know, my journals or like talking to my parents or calling up old friends and be like, "Do you remember this?" And the thing that surprised me the most—it's been so long since I was religious that I forgot what that felt like. You know, I mean, I remembered what it felt like as a kid, but I forgot that I had felt it um, as, you know, someone with pretty much the same brain that I have now. Um, like, you know, as a as a fourteen year old, as a fifteen year old, and that was a surprise for me. And thinking about why why I had put that part of me away so, so firmly, um, like that, that threw me for a loop. I have advice. I have advice for this, but it's bad. It like might be bad. It might be bad. I have to, I have to really, you know, give you that disclaimer. So I feel like I, I didn't call myself a writer until four or five years after, until like a year after I was editing the hairpin as my job. And I was in an MFA program because I graduated in 09 and I was like, I'll never have a job. It will certainly never be in a, the, the only thing that I'm good at. I was like, I don't know anyone in New York. I don't know anyone who's a writer. I was just like, I, I joined the Peace Corps. I was just like, I, this will never happen for me. And as a result, like my relationship to writing for a really long time was just one of very private pleasure and challenge. And because I was like, I mean, I think it's still true. Like I thought then it's like, you can't count on anyone reading you. You can't count on being paid fairly or at all. You can't count on anything. You can't certainly can't count on how people are going to react, what they're going to think of you. All you can count on is the pleasure that you can generate for yourself. That's literally it. And I have followed that compass since 2009 basically and I've gotten really 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 lucky but I think that that was a pretty like you know even from like a careerist standpoint that's probably not a bad idea right because I think that's the thing that'll make your work better like and, and like that the advice to an aspiring writer is just like make you know it's like it's just your work it's nothing it's like it's not about I mean I think it's not about reaching out to people at the right time or like playing your cards right. It's just about making your writing something that will continually generate like chemistry and friction and like, you know, enjoyable problems and like the good kind of agony for yourself. And if you, and if you follow that, it's like you basically um, can't go wrong because that's something that you can always figure out how to do for yourself and, and can continue to figure out how to do for yourself. But again, like, I don't know if that's good advice, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much oh. for coming to LA, Oh, this is my this is my aunt, my Tita. <laughs> you look great. <laughs> Thank you. This is the only time that I never had to force my kids to come to any 
I will do it. I'll do it, Judith Alma. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. About the novel? Oh, it was full of that, for sure. <laughs> I mean, what else is there to write about? And novels are like, you know, novels are all about un, like happiness and dread, unhappiness and dread. But Sorry. Like, will, will I have that feeling again? I am dying to write fiction again or like, you know, write work in narratives in some form. It's like what I'm going to try to do next, even though I don't know if it'll be a novel. Like probably like all journalists, I'm going to try to write a screenplay. But like, you know, it's, but I... And it's partly because my sense of interiority, like, you know, the texture of fiction, it's like fiction is, the magic of fiction is about the texture of that interiority, and mine sounds exactly like myself, and that's a nightmare, you know. And so, um, but I will never revisit it, because I think, so I worked on that novel for four years, I shelved it, um, I didn't think it was that good, and, and it was, I thought it was publishable, but I didn't think it was that good, and that's also something that I think, I've never regretted that, because I think... Um, like we live in an era where we are encouraged to monetize every last bit of like spare time, like every moment, you know, to render it monetizable and monetized for a social network or whatever to make every bit of labor pay off, right? And um, it's really tempting and I, I adhere to that incentive in so many ways. But with that novel, it was like, the, it's the big reminder in the back of my head that it's often better to leave things yourself like it's it is sometimes really good to have things exist just to you know to make things just so that they'll just so that they'll exist for you and I think that's a hard lesson that's a hard thing for me to even wrap my head around now I think it's hard in our like generation to do because we're supposed to you know be producing constantly but I will part of the reason that I want to leave that put is because I want to remember that it's like writing is worth it for its own sake. You know, devoting yourself to a project is worth it. The work itself is worth it. It's not what comes of it necessarily. Um, and, and I actually still think that that's still how I think about all my writing. And it might just be protective. You know, it might be me trying to protect myself against getting attached to results. But I also think that's not a bad thing either. And so it's like that novel lives in the back of my head as a reminder that like, let's say, you know, two months from now I start a new project and it sucks, I spend a year on it, great. You know, like it's not time wasted, it's actually time incredibly well spent. And I think um, it's also just a reminder, it's a reminder of like the, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And I think like, and, and that's like a, I try to remember that because I think we live in a time where it's also like, if you can do something, it's like, you know, the world's ending. So, you know, order a bathing suit on Postmates or whatever. And like, you know, and, and I often am like, just because I can, just because I could do that doesn't mean that I should, you know? <laughs> oh. Mm -hmm. hey, um, you're talking about uh, systems versus self and collective and 
what's a good way of talking about that with young people, like fourteen, fifteen, as as a way of you know where to put their energy and mm. explaining that in a way that would be useful to them. I. That's a really good question. So the question is like, how how do we take the systems talk and apply it to you know, uh, you know, communist fourteen year olds or whatever, or make them into communist fourteen year olds? Um, I don't know. I kind of think that they're 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 closer to their. I mean, it might be self. Like I, I have been talking to a ton of teenagers recently, and they have this the really tangible sense of systemic dread and futility, and that's kind of good because they want big solutions. You know, I think. Um, I think, I mean, I don't know, like I'm probably not a good person to, you know, if I was like working with, you know, if I was a community organizer that worked with voter register, you know, for, but these kids are already organizing, you know, like the, like the two biggest, um, you know, grassroots, like campaigns of the last year, it's been the climate, you know, the climate march and the Parkland kids, right? And they are too young to vote often. And I think, I kind of think that um, maybe our role is just to, support them and, um, you know, let them, you know, like, I guess what, what, what's incumbent upon us is to support the policies that they will benefit from and let them, yeah, do the rest. There was another, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, this question isn't like fully fleshed out, but like, um, in your, in your essay, Pure Heroines, I was kind of wondering, I, I like totally like vibe with that whole essay, um, but like and the part where you get where uh, you talk about how yeah young women are depicted or like adult women are depicted and how they like tend to resort to like uh, committing suicide and like specifically and um, specifically thinking about like Madame Bovary and like virgin or like or an adolescent's version of suicide. I was kind of wondering like what you how you are thinking about like I like the writers of these novels and how like those two novels like they just talked about Virgin Suicide and Madame Bovary are written by men and yeah. how they're like depicting women in comparison to like all of the books about like happy young like child like ch like child ladies are like <laughs> are like all written by um by women so yeah I mean I think that it's like Anna Karenina too, right? I mean, another suicide novel, right? But but I I actually like I think that Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina are two of the best novels about women that exist, and and I I don't think that the fact that the authors were male for me that doesn't detract from it at all. Um, like I I think you know what what I do. I think that the movement from brave girl to bitter suicidal woman, it like they are exposing no matter who the author is, that movement is exposing what is, you know, what there's not enough space for in real life. And there wasn't enough space for, you know, marital unhappiness or divorce or the possibility of a woman, you know, living an independent life without the financial patronage of a man. Like, you know, there'd be no like those novels are exposing a problem that I want exposed. Um and I think they're what I do think, what I do think of as if there is sort of an essentialist difference in you know great novels written by men about women canonically, to me where I really feel a textural difference is how rape is used in them, like for like like Tess of the D'Urbervilles or whatever, like all of like rape is for me used much more mechanically and conveniently in even great novels written about women by men, um, not necessarily um, it's not necessarily the 
you know, the depression part that I find like a, like different gender wise. Yeah. Um, someone had, yeah. Maybe that's why I have it. I just, just figured that out. Thank you. <laughs> like literally, never had that thought before. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have so many holdovers from that part of growing up. And some of them I think are really wonderful, right? Like some of them, like my, like the understanding of, you know, being seven years old and feeling like I was walking around in this halo of golden light from God, you know, this ecstatic feeling that I had as a kid, like wanting to be in huge crowds with like stained glass everywhere and like music really loud, like, and just feeling, feeling sanctified in some way. Um, I love that I still want that feeling, you know, and it's led me to a lot of good things, I think, um, though others might disagree. And I, and I think, like, plenty of me has not changed at all. Like, that, that sort of continual auditing, the, the moral auditing and thinking of life as a moral act um, and there being sort of a built-in moral imperative to, you know, do something. And also, yeah, like a sense of mystery, you know, I think I still have that from growing up religious. Uh, the thing about, I think, but me leaving, I mean, my main path away from the church was me hating the prosperity gospel and me hating economic conservatism and me, you know, hating this, like the reflexive pro-war, like all of that stuff. But what I also, I think it, it just was, became so clear to me that, you know, we all have to figure these things out for ourselves, you know, like it, we have to... We, it is, it's so important to have a sense of morality that we think about with that much importance, but it, it seems impossible to me that it could ever come anywhere but from inside, or, you know, even though there are so many factors that shape that. And I think it's like in that way the church flipped me 180, like it kept one part exactly the same, but, you know, the idea became that this sense of morality just... It wouldn't stick unless it came from deep, deep, deep down inside you and only you can figure that out, which is part of probably part of the reason that like it's like it's no good telling anyone what to do. Um, all you can do is kind of hope that maybe something will like the most I've ever hoped for of anything I've written about is that maybe something will shift a little bit in someone else that'll be good for them, maybe, you know? That seems like the most you could ever hope for. <laughs> I like your shirt. It says it's an honor just to be Asian. I pitched the book exactly as I wrote it. So at that point, no. But there were things like I did think, I mean, there probably should be a Peace Corps essay in the book, but um, I'm not clear enough about that time of my life to write about it. Like, I still don't understand it enough to write about it. And I also didn't keep any notes because one of the things I was trying to do, and I, I write constantly, like, compulsively all the time, but when I was in the Peace Corps, I was like, you know, this is... Um, in order to decenter myself, one way to do that is to not constantly write down what I'm thinking all the time. And I, 
I did that and it maybe drove me crazy. Like I maybe need to be writing all the time. And as a result, like maybe I'll never be able to figure it out because I don't have the, I don't have the recording of it, you know? And all I have is whatever narrative I've made out of it in the meantime, which I don't feel like I can trust it. Um, so I did think about that, but not, I didn't ever start writing about it because I think it was so clear to me that I don't know enough. Yeah. Cool. I think Gia's going to sign some books. Thank you guys for coming and for standing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.